If you haven't already, take your Bibles. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to be in our Bible study time today. And make sure you reach inside your bulletin and pull out your sermon notes so that you can follow along because we have been studying beginning this year and moving through this year. We've been studying God's church. We've been studying all about Jesus church because we're trying to figure out as a church in this community what has God called us to do as an organization and what does that mean God has called us to do as people? What do we have to do together? To really be what God wants us to be in this community and what do we have to become individually for us to become anything special together on your sermon notes you'll see that last week we studied Acts chapter 2 verses 17 through 21 and we saw in Acts 2 17 through 21 an 800 year old description at the time which means it's nearly 3,000 years old now prophecy of what God's church was going to be 800 years before Jesus church began a prophet named Joel said here's what it will look like when God finally sends his spirit on the world there's going to be a group of people that get together to do this and here's the description that we're giving Joel said that God would move through his spirit in the lives of his people of all ages to impact a generation that people might see God hear about God, feel God, call on God, and be saved. This was the question the Apostle Peter was asking in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came down and everyone said, what is going on? Peter said, you've asked what's going on, here's what's going on. The prophet Joel said 800 years ago that there was going to come a time when God was going to do something major on planet earth. Joel said that there was going to be a time where God moved in the lives of people and here's what it would look like. God would move through his spirit in the lives of his people of all ages to impact a generation that people might see God, hear about God, feel God, call on God and be saved. And this is what the book of Acts shows us and teaches us about. So we've said this year at our church, our learning is going to be based in the book of Acts. We're calling it the year of Jesus church. Last year at Journey 2014 was the year of Jesus. We started at the birth of Jesus and walked all the way through the life, the teaching, the disciples, the methods, the missions. We talked all about Jesus last year. This year we talk about his church. The reason we're doing that, the purpose of our learning this year is we believe that understanding Jesus church helps us understand our place and our purpose within his church. What are we doing every Sunday when we come hang out? What's, what's the purpose in our place and the purpose of what God has called his church to do? Or do we just get together and hang out on Sundays because this is what we've always done or it's what we started to do? Is there a purpose for what we're doing? And is there a specific place that we fall in the purpose of God? And with all of that, we're kind of looking to the book of Acts this year as our church has a plan to build a building. We believe in the plan of Journey Church International that it's time for us to build a building. So all month long in January, we showed you just kind of little snippets of what we're planning to build and schematic design stuff that's being processed. It's why you're sitting on nice chairs today. Do y'all like the chairs? Like, like yeah, I, I, y'all look like you're ready for a long sermon. I mean, you're like you're settled in and comfortable and ready to go. These are only here this week. We, we got to take them back next week. But we want to give you little glimpses of what our church might look like once we're in our building. That's what the youth ministry deal is. Our youth ministry is going to look every week like it will look on February 15th. So we want our students and our parents to come and see that and to be a part of it. And for those of you who have been praying for this process, pray this week. Three weeks ago, we submitted our entire project for our preliminary estimate 
this is the week that all the people come back together and say, this building we have designed actually costs this that they are planning to spend. And this week is the week, if everything goes well, that we kind of push go on all the plans. We'll be able to reveal a much deeper level of what we're planning because we know exactly what it costs. It's a big week for us. But this is going to be a big year for us spiritually as we study the book of Acts. And we're going to kind of fast forward through Acts chapter 2, picking up last week. Peter was asked, what's going on? Peter said, God's starting his church. And then in Acts 2, 22 through 41, Peter stands up and he preaches the message of Jesus. He preaches the message of repentance. He preaches the message of salvation. And he preaches the message of new life. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Because in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and he said, this is who Jesus is. This is why Jesus came. This is how Jesus lived. This is why Jesus died. And you should follow Jesus. It's where we began our spiritual year last year, January 2014. We started in Matthew 4.17 and Matthew 4.19. Jesus' first words of ministry statement within the gospel of Matthew were repent, which means change the way you do things, and follow me, which means become like me. So Jesus started his gospel story with the words, you need to change your life and become more like me. We took a year of what it of, uh, to learn what it meant to change our life to become more like Jesus. Peter now starts at that place and said, so Jesus' church starts with knowing who Jesus is. Hopefully, we know that a little bit. Now we want to understand who Jesus is and where his church is. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, we begin to capture that. We capture what I call a first look into the DNA, into the culture, into the community and into the impact of Jesus' church. Up to this point, we've never seen Jesus' church in action. We've not heard Jesus' church described. We've not been able to watch it from afar. Up to this point, there has been really no church. But in Acts 2, 42 through 47, for the first time, we see this picture of the culture and the community. We see this first look into how the church functions, its activities, and its impact. And what's interesting is this, is this is not really the highlight of this chapter or even this season in the book of Acts. This is nothing more than kind of a transition between one sermon in Acts chapter 2 and another sermon in Acts chapter 3. This is, for those of you who are familiar with literature or, or, or theater at all, this is, all this is is kind of a scene change. This is a filler. This is time to fill between Act 1 and Act 2, where they're changing everything out. But the glimpse we get of the church is unbelievable. I saw this scene shift for one of the first times when Danielle got me to go downtown to one of the Kansas City theaters, and we saw the play Les Miserables. And if, if, you've, if you've seen that play, um, they have a moving stage where literally they would do an entire scene, and then between scenes they would stay on the stage, and they would all walk, but the stage would be moving and kind of a scene would just pass before you just to transition from one scene to the next. They do this in movies. One of my favorite movies is A Christmas Carol, the one with George C. Scott where he's Ebenezer Scrooge. And every now and then they pull back from that little town that he lives in and you kind of hear the little band playing and you see Tiny Tim limping down the street and somebody's dragging a cart with a goose on it. And it just transitions from one spot to the next, but there's some filler time in there. Maybe in The Wizard of Oz, after Dorothy lands in Oz and she gets introduced to all the, the munchkins and the, the, the little lollipop kids sing their song to her and they tell her you got to go down the yellow brick road and as she starts moving kind of the camera pans back and you can see this mass of people that moves you from 
one scene to the next where she begins down that road. And for those of you who didn't know that I was that cultured to ever see plays or, or like a, see a classic, this also happens in the movie Dumb and Dumber. For those of you who have maybe not seen the good ones. In Dumb and Dumber, after they lose their van, Lloyd buys, a, buys a, like, a, like a moped. And he comes back to get Harry on the moped. And they have a little argument about what they were doing. And he convinces Harry to get on the moped and head to Aspen with him. And as they ride off on the moped, the scene transitions as they ride off into the sunset from the plains to the mountains. And then, then you pick up the story and Harry's got to use the bathroom. And though you, you kind of know where it goes from there. But it's just, it's just kind of a, a passing glimpse to get you from point A to point B. But as we look at the church, we need to press pause at this little scene shift because what we see in Acts 2, 42 through 47 is unbelievable. The picture of this church makes you want to lean in and say, man, I want to go to a church like that. I want to be a part of a church like that. Look at Acts 2, 42 through 47. It says they, they is the 3,000 people that just became Christians in verse 41 and the leaders of the church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As we press pause on this scene shift between the sermon in Acts 2 and the ministry in Acts chapter 3, we see a first look at the culture of the early church and we see, we see this culture of sharing. We see this first church kind of lived in this community, in this culture of sharing. And these verses can be broken up by the activities they participated in and the impact that that had on the people who were watching the church. We see first that they had a culture of sharing their lives. We see that they had a culture of sharing their lives. We see in the first church a culture of community, which means a whole group of people together. We see a culture of learning. We see that they were continually learning new things about Jesus and how to follow Jesus. And we see a culture of spiritual awakening where things were beginning to happen and they were beginning to know and understand and connect with God in a way that they had never connected. But it was all within, it was all within a culture of community. It was all within a culture of together. Look at Acts 2.42. It starts off and it says they, circle the word they. Because they becomes the theme of our first look into the church. I won't make you circle all the pronouns that are in verses 20, 42 through 47. But listen to the 12 words used to describe the church in its activities and its impact in these seven verses. They, themselves, everyone, all, together, everything, they, anyone, every day, they, together, all the people. Did any of you grow up in small town USA? And you loved it? Because I grew up in small town USA and I loved it. And, and life was lived in community. And kind of everyone took care of everyone. And, and I grew up in a they town, not a me town. We see that the church is a, is a they thing. It's a them thing. It's a community thing. And look at Acts 2.42. It says, they devoted themselves to four things. To the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, I dug into this, and the four are easy to see, but I kept getting stuck on this word, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. And as I looked at that, I thought, Lord, I want to know exactly what the author of the book of Acts wrote. So I've had just enough seminary training. I've taken just enough classes in Greek, which is the original language that the New Testament was written in. I've got just enough ministry tools on my shelf that I was able to go and find the exact Greek word that was written, this word that means devoted themselves 2,000 years ago, because I wanted to know what was Luke saying about this group of people. And Luke used a Greek word that translates this, a steadfast and single-minded devotion to a certain course of action, to spend much time or to practice continually. Does that describe your Christianity? Because this was the description of the Christians who went to the church 2,000 years ago. Here's here's how they live their faith. It was a steadfast and single-minded devotion to a certain course of action. They spent much time and they practiced continually. You know, a few years ago... an award-winning author from the New Yorker by the name of Malcolm Gladwell wrote a a New York Times best-selling book called The Outliers. And it was a book that basically studied outliers of society, um, the good ones, like the ones that stood out for extreme extreme excellence in some area. It it studied the lives of uh, Chinese violinists who had made not only the best of the symphonies in China, but the best of symphonies all over the world. It studied the lives of Canadian ice hockey players, not just ice hockey players, but Canadian ice hockey players, and and why they were the best in the world. It studied the lives and the music of the Beatles, probably one of the most influential music groups that's ever hit the, the history of music. It studied the wealth and business practices of Bill Gates to, to ask what did he do that set him apart from every other person developing computer software in the early 80s? What is it that made the outliers the outliers? And the thing that education has taken away from his book that people now talk about a lot is this 10,000 hour rule. In the 10,000 hour rule is this, when Gladwell and his team studied the outliers, the people who were the best of the best, the people who had achieved excellence in any area of life, they found out that it was not always the most talented. It was not those who had been born with means versus those who had been born without means. It was not those with the most, uh, with the greatest ability or even the best coaching. It was those who had spent an average of 10 thousand hours over the course of a decade perfecting their craft. Those people who had spent an average of two and a half hours a day over the course of a decade became the very best of the best of the best of the best of the best in their industry. If you look at anything in your life, you do two and a half hours. You practice a piano two and a half hours a day for a decade, you're going to be unbelievable. You, sh- you shoot free throws two and a half hours every day for a decade. 
like you're going to be unbelievable. You practice kicking a soccer ball or you play your instrument or you practice writing or you, you do your sport or you do your thing or you do your singing or you develop a program or, or you text two and a half hours a day. Some of you teens for a decade, you're going to like, you could win an Olympic medal in texting. You, you spend two and a half hours on Facebook every day for a decade. You, 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 you need prayer uh, because I mean, I, I don't know what you would become good at other than gossip if you did that. Uh, but I mean, Gladwell says the same thing that Luke is saying. People who devote themselves to something achieve greatness. And I look at this first church that changed the world. And I wonder if we would be as devoted if, as they were if we could see similar things happening. I know I, I, I don't often spend two and a half hours a day, every day for a decade, developing myself spiritually. But there are many people here today who won't spend two and a half hours this week. There are some of you here today who won't spend two and a half hours this month. And when we look at the church that changed the world, we see it was made up of individuals who were willing to change themselves. The church that changed the world was made up of people who devoted themselves to becoming great Christians. The greatest challenge I could give you from today's Bible study time is to devote yourselves this year to Jesus more than you have and to see what will happen. Now, what were they devoted to? And let me say this, great thought. There's no deep transformation in your life without a deep devotion to something. You're not going to become great at a sport without working at it. You're not going to become great in, in school without working at it. You're not going to become great playing that instrument without working at it. You're not going to become great in business long term without working on it. You're not going to have great relationships without working on it. There's no deep transformation without deep devotion to something. And we see that the early church was devoted to four things. One, the apostles' teaching. We sang through the, the Apostles' Creed, which has been passed down from the earliest generations of the church. It, it was what Christianity was known for. The things they not only believed, but the things they were learning about. The Apostles' Creed, taken from the English church, circa 1500, says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell, and on the third day rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he will come back to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, in the Holy Catholic Church. That word Catholic is a Latin word that means Universal. It doesn't mean any type of denomination or way of doing church. In the Apostles' Creed, it meant, I believe, in the global church and the impact it can have. The communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. The church was known for the things they were learning. And the church said, we're learning about God, we're learning about Jesus. We're learning about what Jesus wants us to do, and we're learning how to prepare our lives to live with Jesus in eternity one day. So how much would your life be described by people around you as a life devoted to learning about Jesus? Because the early church devoted themselves to learning about Jesus. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Now this is interesting. When you look at everything we could have learned about the early church, it, it doesn't seem like it's a big deal that they hung out, but the second thing we learn about them is they devoted time to hang out, to spend time with people. 
You know, as we look at the book of Acts, we see two things that it seems like everyone in the church does. They belong to some kind of small group that meets in homes, talks about Jesus, hangs out together, and they serve where there's a need. So at our church, we've tried to set up these two funnels that we call small groups and volunteering. And I have to ask you a serious question this morning that only you can answer. And I want you to wrestle with this for a little bit. Why are you not yet involved in a small group or volunteering? What's the reason? Because when we see the most important things in the early church that shaped it to be the community of sharing that it was, we see people took time to share their life to fellowship with other people. Why are you not in a small group yet? Why do you not volunteer yet? Is it because you're busier than anyone who's existed ever in the church? Is it because we're way busier than the people in Acts 2? And you, you know, they took time to share their life with people, but I don't have that much time. Is it because we're above that? Is it because we don't like people? Is it because we've had a bad experience? Is it because we're too tired on Sunday? You have got to figure out, as you try to lean into being a part of the church that we see in Acts chapter 2, you have to ask yourself, if you're not living in community yet, why? What is it that keeps me from sharing my life with other people? What is it that keeps me from sharing in volunteering and serving? And this year, I believe you've got to devote yourself to those things. Share some of your life. Share some of your time, your talent, your skills to get engaged because the early church did that. They were committed, number three, to breaking bread, which means they were committed to taking time to have breakfast or lunch or dinner together. I told Danielle as I began to study through the book of Acts, I think the, the area my leadership has failed the most as a pastor of our church has been in this area, number three. Because I've got some people in our church that before, before anyone else, I am called to really know and minister to well. The four pastors who serve on our staff outside of me and their families. The five elders outside of myself that help us lead our church and make decisions for our organization. And the four members of our pastoral advisory team that depended on your faith tradition kind of serve like deacons in our church to help us really make good decisions moving forward. I could not do ministry at our church without these men and women. And Danielle and I got to the end of 2014 and I started being challenged by this thought that the church took time to have meals together. And I actually got with my staff in January and I said, how many times did we, outside of ministry, just to fellowship, how many times did we have a meal? And one by one, all four of the pastors on our staff said, we didn't. Not one time last year did we ever have a meal together. Took my elders out for a Christmas dinner and asked them the same question. And not one time last year with our elders and our wives, did we spend time breaking bread? Same thing with our pastoral advisory team. And I told Danielle, regardless of how busy my life is this year, we've got this group of 13 people at least twice this year. I just want to ha hang out and have a meal with these people. I want to get to know them. I want them to speak into my life as a Christian and as a pastor. I want them to speak into what our church is doing. She's a Christian. That's like 26 dinners when you add your finance meetings and your elder meetings and your mission trips and your youth camps, like your year is going to be like almost booked up. And I said, that's all right. If it's booked up doing what they did in the early church, I want to do that. I want my life booked up with those things because sometimes we just run too hard, too fast, and we don't live life within the context that the church was created to live life. in. And then number four, they prayed. 
they were committed, they had a devotion to prayer. And I love this thought of prayer. It's why I said there was a spiritual awakening. You can't pray if you're asleep spiritually. Prayer comes out of a deep spiritual awareness that there is a God in some kind of relational longing or relational reality that this God, he knows me, he loves me, he cares about me, he listens to me. So prayer, just the act of praying is a spiritual awakening that moves you forward spiritually. You know, in America, we experienced two great periods of of spiritual awakenings called the Great Awakenings. The first Great Awakening from 1730 to 1754, so the second Great Awakening in the late 1800s. These were periods that were marked by, more than anything, prayer. There were churches during the Great Awakenings that were open every day of the week simply for people to come pray. And when people prayed, God moved. So I'm so excited through our small groups this year. At the end of March, our entire church We'll move our small groups to study prayer together and to spend 40 days in prayer together learning how to pray and asking God to bring an awakening to our church and our community. And when these four things happened, look at the impact. Scripture says that when these four things happened, people took note of this spiritual community. And they took note of it within the context of probably the most religious culture ever. Being spiritual in Jerusalem is not a big deal. Being religious in Jerusalem doesn't stand out. Some of you will travel to Israel with me this year and we'll go to Jerusalem and there's people there night and day praying at the wall. They wear certain religious clothes. They carry around their Bibles. They stand on the street corners and preach. They have boxes attached to their forehead. They have strings up their arm. They wear tassels off their garments. They cut their hair a certain way. Religious people don't stand out in Israel. They're everywhere. But this little community that was more than religious, that did more than go to church, that that did more than have some religious practices, that lived in this community of sharing life together, they got everyone's attention and everyone said, these people are different. Everyone here is religious, but these people are different. The way they shared their lives with each other for the good of each other and for the spiritual good of their community was unlike anything anyone had ever seen. And man, I would do anything for people to see our church this way. I pray one day when people talk about journey, they don't talk about the preacher, the pastor, the preaching, the music, the kids ministry. I pray they don't talk about what happens on Sunday. I pray they talk about the people and the relationships and the community and the outreach, and the serving, because that's different than any of their other friends that are engaged in some kind of church. So they had a culture of sharing their lives, but then secondly, they had a culture of sharing their resources. There was this culture in the early church that was a culture of sharing resources. Look at verses 44 through 46. It says, All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Look at verse 44 one more time. I want you to underline something. It says, all the believers were together and circle the next, or underline the next part. And they had everything in common. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. There was a belief in Jewish culture going way back in the Old Testament that as a Jewish man and woman providing for your family, that you should not only ask God to provide enough for you to take care of you, 
but that you should ask God to provide enough to take care of you and to help take care of others. There, there was this thought that you would want God to do extra for you, not just for you, but so that you could help take care of others. And you see this laced throughout Old Testament history in, in, the, in the Jewish culture. We really see it show up first in the story of Noah. We, we see how generous our God is in the story of Noah. This, uh, this week I had a chance to hang out and, and have a meal with my little girl Casey um, after school. Casey's 11. One thing I've challenged Casey and my son Christian to do is read through the entire Bible before they graduate high school. And they both started Christians moving into Deuteronomy. Casey has completely finished Genesis. But as Casey reads, um, every night as she reads, she has questions. Um, and she writes down her questions. And every night I go to tuck her into bed, like it'd be time to go to bed, but she would have all these questions. So I said, listen, just write down all your questions. And when you finish the whole book, we'll go out and you can ask me all your questions about that book. And she said, okay. So this Thursday was my time with her. So I'm going to try to spend one day a month where I pick you up from school and we just hang out for two hours. And I thought, you know, where, if you really want to bless your daughter and take her, you know, someplace girly that's fun and cool, you know, where should we go? So I thought about a long time. We went to Buffalo Wild Wings and sat down and, um, and got some wings. It was awesome. And she was asking me her questions, just starting at Genesis 1. And she said, Dad, I have a lot of questions. I said, that's all right. She took her little iPod that they're written in. And she said, Dad, here's my questions. And there was a screen full of questions. And she went, zoom. And like another screen of questions, zoom. And I said, all right, just shoot. We'll go as long as we have to. And she got to the story of Noah and the ark. And she said, very astute question for an 11-year-old. She said, why when Noah went on the ark, did he take two of some kind of animals, but seven of some other kind of animals. Why do you take two of some kind and seven of another kind? Um, and I said, great question. And I said, God had him take two of everything because he needed these animals to be able to reproduce, have babies, and, and stay alive. But the clean animals Noah used for offerings. He had to give sacrifices for offerings. So I said, God gave him seven so that he could have two that stayed alive and did what they were supposed to do, then they could have some to eat, and then they could have some for offering. See, God made sure they had everything they needed. And Casey said, so God gave them everything they needed plus extra so they could give offerings? And I said, yes. And she said, that's pretty neat. And I thought, man, like at that point it hit me, like what a cool moment I'm having with my little 11-year-old. You know, and just kind of time stopped. And like I looked over and she's holding her little teriyaki wing on her, on her fork and she's got a big spot of like teriyaki sauce on her chin. And I'm thinking like Casey has made a $100 commitment to the building. She's trying to give $100 to help build our building. She started paying that down. So I'm beginning to think about how she's processing that, you know, God's going to give her this money to help her do this. And as our waitress comes up, Casey's sitting there and she begins to go through her next list of questions. And right as our waitress walks up, she says, okay, so um, dad, what's circumcision? Because she was now in the life of Abraham. So I did what you did. It's like, <laughs> like the, the waitress was kind of like, like, what is going on at this table here? You know, and I wanted to say, well, you know, well, Casey, subscription is when you buy a magazine. It's like, you know, I just told her, I said, you should probably ask Pastor Ryan about that one and let him, I think he's more scholarly on, on that one. So we're gonna, we, we should talk about that one later. She said, is it anything like baptism? And I said, not the way I do it. I, that not, not, that's not how I baptize. But that's a good question. It's one of her many questions. But from Noah to when you look at the life of Joseph at the end of Genesis, 
God said there's going to be a famine on the whole world. I'm going to provide Egypt, not only enough for Egypt, I'm going to provide Egypt enough to feed the entire world because I always give extra. Two, when you look at in the book of Numbers and Leviticus, as God begins to give the Israelites a rules, he said, plant your fields. Your fields will be full of harvest. And he said, harvest everything you need, but there will still be leftovers for everyone else that they can come and glean. So he said, harvest everything you need, but not right up to the edge of the fields because I'm going to give you enough for you and others as long as you don't use it all on yourself. So there was this thought in this Jewish culture where this church would have asked the question, what do I have and how can I share it? It's just a part of who they were. Not because they were Christians, but because they were deeply religious and raised in this Jewish culture that God gave you everything you needed and enough to share. So they would have asked the question, what do I have? How can I share it? And when you look at the impact of their sharing in Acts 46 and 47, man, what's created is just unbelievable. You see a spiritual family that's coming together. You see people who, because they shared their life, they were aware of what was going on and they made sure people were taken care of. Because they shared their life, they began to understand not just what happened behind the doors of their household, but what the needs were in their community. And this spiritual family, what none of them could have done individually, all of them were able to do collectively. And this spiritual family made this tremendous impact in Jerusalem. We see a culture of people that began to be known for the way they sacrificed, for the way that they were willing to take less, for the way that they were willing to use less, for the way that they were willing to take something they had of value and and to give it away so, so somebody else could have something. We see this culture that was known for their sacrifice. And I'm telling you, we're not going to build a building for our community to be able to come and have church if we don't sacrifice. Because if we all just give what's extra, what's laying around in our life, it's probably not going to amount to much. So it'll take sacrifice. You know, today's Super Bowl Sunday, my, my third favorite holiday of the year behind Christmas and Easter. Um, I love Super Bowl Sunday. I love, every, I love Super Bowl week, actually. And I've been struggling in my spirit a little bit all week with this concept of sacrifice because I, I, had, I had Super Bowl tickets this year. It's been a bucket list item for me. And I had the opportunity presented to me by one of my friends who works in professional sports to go to the Super Bowl this year. Called me last summer and said, I can get you, you'll have to pay for the tickets, but I get a face value, $800 for 1600 You and your wife um, can come to the Super Bowl. We'll take care of all the flights. We'll take care of all the lodging. You will need a car. Your only cost to spend a week in Phoenix and go to the Super Bowl will be $1,600. Do you want to do it? And I thought, heck yeah, I want to I do it. But I began to realize the season that our church was in. And God began to convict me that if I wasn't willing to lead by example in giving up good things so that God might do great things, that I, that I couldn't ask other people to really sacrifice. So I started talking to all my mentors, and I was like, man, this has presented itself. Like, I'd really like to go. I don't think I can do everything I want to do for the building and that. Um, I feel like I should stay home. What do you think? I expected them all to say, man, that is so, that's so spiritually you. Um, you know, God bless you. That's exactly what you do. All of them. Every one of my mentors and pastoral coaches said, dude, it's the Super Bowl. Like, you have to go to the Super Bowl. But the more Danielle and I prayed about it, the more Danielle and I discussed it. I just thought, now is not, now is not the year. This is not the time because sacrifice is either real or it's not. 
And one day I want to be able to stand up and say, I, I gave this away so that someone else could have this. And I've been praying in my spirit this way. I mean, every time I see something on TV, it's like, Lord, perhaps I made the wrong decision. When I heard it might snow this week, I thought, man, nobody's going to be at church anyway. I should be in Phoenix watching the Super Bowl. I, I've even prayed, Lord, you saw what I did. Please give me Super Bowl tickets for free next year. It's like, like I'm trying to leverage this a little bit. But I understand through this process that sometimes you've got to sacrifice the good to see the great happen in someone else's life. We, we see a church in Acts 2 that's generous and that was known for their generosity. I, I love the generosity of the people in our church, and I love the generosity of our church within our community. And most of you don't even know. You hear Pastor Ryan say every week at the offering, we take the first 12% of what comes in in our offerings, and we invest that in missions and give away. But I know you don't know the impact we're having, because I don't know the impact that we're having. So this fall, as I knew we were, we were going to talk to our people about the impact of our church, you know, I know we do back snack stuff. We, we send a lot of money and help buy food and do summer lunch programs for kids who can't eat on the weekends, kids who don't have anything to eat over the summer. So I just asked Pastor Ryan, I said, do you, is there any way to figure out how many meals our church has fed kids in the Lee Summit School District who won't eat if we didn't sponsor it? Is there any way for anyone to tell us that number? Is, is there a quantifiable number of people that in the last three years our church has fed because of the way we've given. And he went and called the, the directors of the ministries we work with here locally, and he came back and he gave me a number that was so huge. Although that can't be right. You gotta go, go check that again. So he went and checked back and he said, listen, this is their number, not ours. They're telling us our giving has provided this many meals the last three years. I actually, one more time this week said, are you sure that number is correct? That doesn't seem possible in three years. He said, yes, Christian. Our church has provided 62,000 meals to kids in the Lee Summit community the last three years by the way they've given. 62,000 meals for kids on state-sponsored lunches that the school district tells us when they go home, they don't have anything to eat. If you don't provide it, they don't get it. 62,000 meals. 750 Christmas gifts our church has provided parents and families in our community for kids who would not have Christmas any other way. Food pantries at numerous schools that we have stocked. Gym clothes that we have paid for for middle schools. When we've asked, what's, what's your need? And they say, we know we're going to have several dozen kids who can't pay for the t-shirt and the shorts at gym class. And we just cut them a check. School supplies that we've given elementary and middle schools in our areas. And, and probably our biggest push ever. We're, we're going to try to do our biggest community outreach ever this year at Back to School. We're, we're getting communication with the seven elementary schools that send kids to Summit Lakes Middle School, and we want to this year, from their lunches to their school supplies, we want to do more for those elementary schools than has ever been done like in the history of Lee Summit. We got this huge drive. Why? Because we want to be known as a generous church. A generous church needs generous people. And the church in Acts chapter 2 was known as generous. They were known as consistent. I love this. I love that the author could say they did this day after day. They did this time after time. They did this consistently. And i got to be honest with you. We're, we're counting in this season of our church 
We're counting on consistency more than we've ever counted on it before. Because we're moving into a season where we understand both what we're trying to do, but we're understanding what we can do. And we're asking everyone to lean in and be consistent in this time. But then here's what I love. The emotion that was processed by the people in the church. When you look at people who lived in spiritual family, when you look at people who were willing to sacrifice, when you look at people who were generous, when you look at people who were consistent, and we knew it took time to share their life and their resources to get here. It says, number five, they were glad. They were glad. The end result of living this type of church life is that people were happy. People were glad. And man, I've run in circles with a lot of Christian people who don't always seem glad about what they're doing. I have some some friends from the African-American community that I love. Um, and I love, I love when I get to go and be a part of African-American churches. I started in college. My, my roommate was an African-American. I'd go to church with him. The spirit in their churches, in the spirit in their lives, just seems to run a notch or ten higher than, than what happens in most of the suburban world. And I've got a friend that every time I've seen him for the last decade, every time I've seen him, and I say, how's it going? His answer is the same every time. I'm blessed. You have a friend like that? You ever met someone like that? Every time, yeah, how you doing? I'm blessed. Usually people who say that are not white. I don't know why it is. I don't know if white people are not blessed, if we feel like we have problems, if we're just greedy. But every time I say, how you doing? I'm blessed. This early church was blessed. They felt blessed to be able to share their lives and to share their resources. And what's cool is when you look at Acts chapter 2, Sharing is not the point of Acts chapter 2, but it was within the process of how the church did ministry. And sharing, as we look at our church, sharing is a part of this building project, but it's not the point of this building project. The point of this building project is the impact of the church in Acts 2 that we hope is the impact of our church in our community. The people of the community looked favorably upon these people who were willing to share their lives and share their resources. And people were getting saved. Because of a group of people who, in an unusual manner, shared their life. And who, in a generous and sacrificial manner, shared their resources. People wanted to be a part of it and people got saved. You know why that is? It's because people are drawn to generous people. It's just the reality of the situation. People are drawn to generous people. If you've ever been a server at a restaurant... You know the people who generously come in and give a tip and you pray they set them in your section because people are drawn to generous people. If you've got an aunt or an uncle or a grandma or a grandpa or a mom or dad that every year on your birthday is generous to you, you can't wait to go out to the mailbox during that week to see what happens because people are drawn to generous people. And as we prepare to build a building for our church and for our community, It will take generous people sharing their lives and sharing their resources to make it happen. So we've said as a church, we believe it's time for us to build. We have for the last year been putting together this $4 million project that we believe will build us the first phase of a church that we can comfortably move into, increase all of the ministry that we do and do it better, and at the same time provide room for people in our community to come. But we we believe that in order to do that, we've got to raise a million dollars in special giving. 
so that we can work with the bank to figure out how to pay the rest of the cost and to move forward. Now, before we even started this series, before we even went public to the church and said, we believe we're going to build a building, we had about a dozen meetings behind closed doors with all of our elders, with all of our pastoral advisory team, with all of our staff, with all of our key leaders and said, should we do this or not do this? And if your answer is yes, we need to know why it's yes and how you can help us. And by the time we stood on this stage on January 11, 812,000 was already committed to this project. So before we even told our church we were going to build a building, we had already run the first three laps of the race, and we just needed help with the final push of $188,000. Now, I will say in this message what I've said in every other message. If you cannot give to this project or you feel you do not feel led spiritually to give to this project, don't. It will be okay. Every time in scripture they took an offering, it was always under the auspices of those whose hearts are willing should give. So if for some reason you're not at a place you can give or you just don't want to, don't. And don't feel guilty about it. God will help us do this, but he's going to do it by speaking to people to share. So if God's speaking to you to help, say, Christian, what's my part? What can I do? I've said it every week. I'll say it for the next few weeks. You can give a special gift in addition to your normal giving to help us build a building. We say in addition to normal giving because we have budgeted the ministry of, and the programs of our church based on what people give. And if everyone took what they normally give and said, well, let's just give it to the building, we'd have a building but not a church because your offerings fund the ministry that we do. We're asking people to give generously and to give sacrificially. And we're asking people to pray about what they can give between now and August 1, 2016. Not, not today, not next week, but over the course of a year, year and a half, if God's speaking to you and you did your very best and you were willing to sacrifice and be generous, how could you help us? And we're asking you to bring that answer with the first part of that pledge on Sunday, March 1. If you would reach into your bulletin and pull out this pledge card, I've tried to explain it in a way that makes sense to me. I'm pretty process-driven, and sometimes I have to see things. What we're asking is for the people who feel led to give. And that's not going to be everyone. But for the people who feel led to give, we're going to ask that between now and March 1, by no later than March 1, you bring this and you put this in an offering envelope and you drop it off in the offering. And it just includes a total pledge and a first fruit offering or the very first part of that. I've used the same numbers every week. If you're saying, Christian, I think... God is calling us to give $1,000 between now and August to help build a building. Our total pledge is $1,000. I can only give 100 of that by March 1. But over the next year and four months, we'll be good for that $900. I want you to know, I will give this and just turn it in. And we're praying that March 1, when everyone who's given has given and pledged, that on March 8, when we have Celebration Sunday, that we're going to say, we made it. We hit our pledges, we hit our numbers, we had an unbelievable first fruit offering, and we're telling our contractors to keep moving forward, put a hole in the ground, and build a building. But it will take everyone who feels led to give, giving. And you need to know if you feel led to give, there's no amount that won't make a difference in our giving. I heard this week, we had a young man in our youth group who had a birthday party this week. He turned 13. And his mom told Danielle when she went in and then kind of texted her an update yesterday. Instead of doing birthday presents at his party, he invited all these people to his party, but he said, instead of bringing birthday presents, I want you to bring money because my church is building a building and I'm going to give it to our church. And last night his mom texted and said, he's going to bring $240. That's how much he made on his birthday party, $240. 
to give to the church to help build a building. If God speaks to your heart to do something, whether you're 11, 13, 70, there's no amount if God says do this that won't add up to our community seeing a share in a sacrificial, generous way that might draw them in to understand who Jesus is. So if God's calling you to help, we need your help. But let's push all that building stuff to the side and ask one more question. My hope is that today, as much as God has called you to help us build a building, my hope is that God has really challenged you on your spiritual devotion. And he's made you stop and think about how devoted you are and how great you have the ability to become spiritually based on the time you're willing to put into your faith. So with that thought on our minds, can we close in prayer today with you? Will you bow your heads with me? Will you close your eyes?